Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert, Sari Riley. Hello. And playing the role of resident everyman this week in SciShow Tangents <laughs> is our old alumni, Stefan Chin. Oh, yeah. I'm an alumnus. Yeah. The only one graduated from Tangents University. Yeah. Is alumni or alumnus the, the singular one? Alumnus. Okay. In fact, I ran into cloacas. Uh, today on a script huh? of SciShow, a SciShow uh-huh. script. Um, I did not run. I did not physically like, run into a giant cloud of first, cloacas. Right into a cloaca. <laughs> um, and the plural of cloaca is like it's the a e cloaca cloaca. Oh. And uh, and I said no. I'm going to say cloacas because this yeah. is how language changes. SciShow says it one way, especially before people are exposed to the plural of a thing. Like, nobody knows the plural of cloaca. Yeah. If, if I hadn't told you, I bet you couldn't mm-hmm. have told me. And so we're, we're doing it. We're deciding unilaterally that it's cloacas. It sounds better. That's yeah. like the same thing with supernova, where I'm like, it's got to be supernovas, but that's not technically correct. Yeah, supernova. But it just sounds yeah. better. Oh, yeah. This, the language is malleable. Sari, do you have an opinion on this? You're staying awfully quiet. <laughs> if there is a cloud of cloacas, <laughs> what are you running into? A murder of cloacas? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I would say 
just because it's easier for me to say. I like to tack an S on things. Yeah. I'm staring at a bunch of exploding stars. I'm looking at supernovas. If I'm yeah. looking at a bunch of Stephens, I'm looking at Stephens. I'm not looking at Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only sensible way. It's uh-huh. just a whole other person. Yeah. Great. I'm glad we got it settled. <laughs> so we are here are on a podcast. It's called SciShow Tangents. And here on this podcast, we basically, we try to amaze each other and delight each other and also be better than each other at science facts. And we also try to stay on topic. This episode is not about cloacas, so we're failing so far. But our panelists are playing for glory. They're also playing for Hank Bucks, which I will be awarding as we play at the end of the episode. Either Sari or Stefan will be crowned the winner. We are right now counting down to our big butt-themed season three finale by first taking a look at some of the less butt-like parts of the body. Last week, we looked at heads, which are very not butt-like. Uh, unless, you know, certain people, mm. maybe. But what will we do this week? Well, let's find out with the traditional science poem from Sari. What is a hand? It's not a gland or a strand. Oh it can gosh. help you grip some sand or articulate <laughs> as planned. But then what are feet? They're made of meat. That's neat. They help you walk on a street or be an athlete. So what is a toe? Um, a hoof? Oh, no. Or those on a rhino that are dainty and slow. What I'm getting at here is anatomy is weird, and whether front or rear, hands and feet are mere, ends to limbs, I fear, and the specifics are unclear. Uh, the topic for today's episode is hands and feet. Sari, what are hands and feet? And you're going to be like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I tried. I like looked at this first. I, I had such trouble looking at my fact. I had such mm-hmm. trouble writing my poem. And it's because hands and feet are freaking weird. So the things we call hands and feet seem to be restricted to human hands and feet or primate hands mm, and feet. Okay. Anything mm. else? It's all feet, kind of? I don't know. I think a raccoon has hands. Well, that's because they just look little hand, but they don't have opposable thumbs. People say koalas have hands also because mm. they look kind of handy. Yeah. but They do hand work. But that's just because they look like it. I don't know. Are those really hands? Hmm. There's no biological line. I think that if you don't walk on them, they're hands. And so a T-Rex has hands and feet. And humans have hands and feet, and kangaroos have hands and feet. But koalas are a little bit on the edge there, because they can do it either way. They can walk on their feet or on their hands and feet. Primates walk on their hands, though, too. So then are those now feet, yeah. not hands? Uh, I'm not surprised that you can poke holes in my theories. <laughs> <laughs> if they're closer to your head... And you do hand-like things with them, then they're hands? If they do handiwork. Yeah, handiwork. That's why they call it that. <laughs> so if we just say hands and feet as one thing, now do we have a rule? I mean, kind of. It's it's like the end of a limb is what we call it. Well, and like with vertebrates, you have, but this isn't, but like then with wings, then you're like, no, 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 no. Bats don't have hands. Yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. or like snakes where everything is kind of vestigial. Then it's like, oh, that's there's no hand and feet there. It's just bones. But wow. even if like, I don't know, if if because the bats, don't they have like there's little or or is it whales that have like the full hand skeleton looking thing yep. inside their flipper? But if they broke those bones, I guess you wouldn't say they broke their hand bones. We'd probably we have you'd say they broke their flipper, know. but you the might flipper. still say they broke their hand bones like the, it's yeah. still phalanges, which mm-hmm. is which. But but non vertebrates also have feet. 
Like ants have feet. Yeah. So in in that and if an ant can have feet, then it is all bets are off. Yeah. You could draw the line between like tetrapods. So tetrapod is like four feet. Uh-huh. And those are four limbed animals. They're all within the phylum chordata. So like you could say you have to be a chordate to have feet. And that eliminates all arthropods. So ants have legs, but not feet. Well, what the hell am I going to call the end of an ant's legs? When end I... legs. Leg ends. Leg ends. <laughs> They're legends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look at those legends at the end of those legs. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to ask you if we know where the words for hand and feet come from. And I will also hand do a hand wavy answer. Hand. <laughs> Uncertain origin. <laughs> no idea where it came from, which I think is very funny. We just started, uh, like, European folks just started using it What's at some point. What's that look like? Looks like a hand. Yeah, hand. And maybe related to words for, like, power or control or possession. So in the same way of, like, the hand of the king or whatever. Uh, not meaning the body part, but also uh, a, a power, a seat mm. of power. Based on, like, the actions that you do with a hand, which is, like, taking or collecting, or other uh, steely things. Instead of, couldn't be sharing, but it's always taking and it's always controlling. Foot, on the other hand, is like a more logical connection to something that we would have heard of. It's from the root ped, P-E-D, which makes up words like tetrapod or arthropod. So even arthropods, which don't maybe have feet in their names. But how does... Head go to foot. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. That's a big leap. That's just how it happens. Just some lazy chiseling on those old tablets, and they were like, "Ah, oh, yeah, that says foot clearly." Mm-hmm. Yeah, the middle part of the P got eroded away uh-huh, uh-huh. or like filled in, and they were like, "Oh, that's a weird one. It must be a f." <laughs> All right. Well, I feel like <laughs> we've vaguely waved our hands around enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At reality. Uh, And that means that it's time to move on to the quiz portion of our show. This week, uh, we're going to be playing a little game called Whose Hands Are These Anyway? (laughs) So this is very much a part of the short tradition of our body-focused month. So last week, we talked about, uh, I I described to you skulls. Now, you're going to imagine you're on a walk and you're going to see a hand peeking out from behind a corner. The unsettling thing is that you might not be sure what animal that hand belongs to. Luckily, scientists have been doing all sorts of cool experiments to describe hands and figure out the many variety of types of hands out there. So can you guess whose hand is it? And I'm just going to assign you success by how close you are compared to each other. Mm. I'm going to tell you about a hand. It's long. It's thin. It's got creepy looking fingers. It's got a particularly long middle finger that swivels around on a ball and socket joint. These fingers are great for digging insects out of wood, but they make it hard for this animal to grab onto things. But researchers have found another structure in this animal's hands that help it grab onto things, a sixth digit called the pseudothumb located in the middle of this animal's palms. What animal is it? I don't like that idea. I know, it's terrible. <laughs> a palm thumb. Do you have an idea, Sari? I do have an idea. I think I've heard of this animal before, mm, but I'm, I might okay. be going too specific. Okay, I'll go first then. I also have an idea, but 
I might, I don't know. It, what it sounds like to me is the eye eye. I think that's the animal with the really creepy long fingers. I don't know if it has a ball and socket and it wiggles around in wood and has a, a six thumb. I don't know. But it has creepy hands, I think. I think I'm remembering the right animal. So I'll go with the eye eye. Ooh, all right. Cool. I, that was the other one that I was thinking, but I couldn't remember which of these two it was. So one of us is going to be right. Oh, good. Uh, I'm going to guess a kinkajou. Uh, which I think is very similar in that it has long, weird digits <laughs> and roots around in trees. And I think they're both related, which makes sense that they both uh. have gnarly hands. But <laughs> I don't remember which one it is. Remarkably, Stefan got it on the nose. Oh, yes, Stefan. <laughs> the I.I. lemur is so rare, it is very hard to study. But researchers were able to study several specimens that had died of natural causes. And one of the things they looked at is a muscle called the abductor pollicis. In humans, that muscle goes from our forearm to the base of our thumb, but in I.I. lemurs, the muscle doesn't just go to the thumb, it also branches off to the middle of the palm, connecting to a small bone nub called the radial sesamoid. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pseudo-thumb that moves in three directions and has its own fingerprint. It just seems like one of those mistakes that wasn't bad enough to get removed. It just kept going. I would pay for a second thumb. Could you imagine just like grabbing onto like a set, like holding something and then having your whole hand free to do stuff while still holding on to something? Okay. All right. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Carrying groceries? No oh, problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get, like taking all the dishes to the table? Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm sold. Okay. All right. Now we're going to go on to round number two. To understand the evolution of this extinct animal's hands, researchers studied modern-day birds. Specifically, they looked into birds' flexible wrist joints, which allowed them to fold their wings while at rest. The researchers looked into this extinct animal's wrist bones and found a wedge-like shape similar to birds, a trait that would allow it to flap its wrist sideways and to quickly sink its claws into prey. I'm going to guess, and this is popular media absolutely influencing me, mm-hmm. a velociraptor, like a little oh. small chicken, chi- got little chicken wings, <laughs> uh, but to sink claws and prey instead of flap around and fly. Huh. That's a pretty good answer. Uh, the only other thing that's occurring to me, which I'm pretty sure is wrong, but I'm going to go with it, is the terror bird, which like, I'm pretty sure it's wrong because I feel like, I, I don't think... The terror bird has wrists, by our definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, More of a bird, but it, but it's got giant claws, and it's <laughs> I think it's an honorable mention. So okay, well mm-hmm. you've taken the brave way out. The answer is Velociraptor. Okay, <laughs> they are theropods, uh, a predatory dinosaur, likely to be ancestors of birds. Early theropods had straight and inflexible wrists, so scientists have been curious how those wrists eventually led to the very flexible wrists that birds have today. So bird's wrists are super flexible, the equivalent of having a wrist that you can bend your hand so far that your pinky touches your arm. Uh, The wrist can't bend in the opposite direction, nor can it fully straighten, and that helps birds fold their wings when they're resting. It also improves their flying efficiency. And when scientists studied the wrist bones of theropods, dozens of species, they found that this wedge-shaped wrist showed up in those theropods more related to birds, including the velociraptor. Mm. Do you want round number three? Yes, sure, please. we got to break the tie. we got to break the tie. Uh, this animal has dramatic hands, if you call them <laughs> hands. 
It has five digits, including a thumb that extends as a small claw. Scientists compared the development of hands in this animal when it's an embryo to hand development in a mouse embryo and found that while their hand growth looks similar early on, around halfway through gestation, three of the animal's digits be begin to grow very quickly, forming the elongated structure we see in its final form. What the heck? So it sounds like... It has three big toes and then two kind of like <laughs> dinky toes. Three big toes, correct. Or okay. fingers. Fingers. <laughs> yeah, I want it. Three digits. <laughs> yeah. Like the obvious answer, this is not my answer, I don't think, is like a three-toed sloth because <laughs> it's right there in the freaking name. <laughs> I feel like I got to go something more rodent-y. I don't know. Those are my thoughts so far. Well, I'm kind of waiting for you so I can piggyback off your answer and go <laughs> oh, with something I, similar because I have a, no idea. A classic Sam strategy. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go with um, an armadillo. Armadillo. Kind of like oh, that's a rodent-y, but like mm -hmm. large. And I feel like they, I don't even know how many digits they have. So it could, they could be hiding any number under that little <laughs> shell. Oh. I've even tickled an armadillo, but I didn't count the fingers. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, okay, I'll go with three-toed sloth because I really don't have a better answer. This is terrible news for me uh, because I don't know how to judge it. Um, oh. Because the answer is a, is a kind of bat. Uh, those are the oh. extra long fingers that you were missing. They, their fingers grow very long because they Super turn into, into wings. I see. The problem is that sloths and armadillos are really actually quite closely related, which you might not think, but Weird. Uh, yeah, uh, armadillos are some of sloths' closest relatives, along with anteaters. So who, but who is more? <laughs> it's a tie. Yeah, it's we very much it. a tie. <laughs> but I have determined that armadillos are more closely related to uh. bats but okay. not very, very close. <laughs> but armadillos come out on top. So as for how bats work, they have five forelimb digits, three of which are elongated and connected with that thin membrane that turns into the bat wing. And over the evolutionary history of bats, the ratio of the size of those digits compared to the body size of bats hasn't changed much, which means that the evolution of the bat wing probably happened quite suddenly. And they sort of like hit the optimum bat wing size. And they're like, we did it. We're bats now. Congratulations. <laughs> all right. Well, congratulations to all of you. I can't believe you got two of those on the nose. Next up, we're going to take a short break. Then it'll be time for the Fact Off. Slash Your Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast as aspersions? Dispersions? Yeah. Aspersions. One of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm -hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. <laughs> <laughs> 
You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. Yeah, that yeah. bean's not going to grow if, there, if there's, there's a constant drain on the on bean. The bean. Yeah. That <laughs> is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond... I mean, beans and beyond subscription canceling (laughs) rocket money helps you build budgets, track your spending and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans. So they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. a so cheaper, beans, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use you- that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Miriam Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster... (laughs) Use some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand, the only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora... Ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts? I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, ooh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. 
Welcome back, everybody. Time for the Fact Off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present in an attempt to blow my mind. And after they have presented their facts, I will judge them and award Hank Bucks to the one I think will be easiest to turn into the best TikTok. And to decide who goes first, though, I have a trivia question. When running, the part of your foot that you land on makes a significant difference in how your body absorbs the impact. A 2019 study found that when you land on the heel or middle of your foot, your tibia absorbs more of the shock than when you land on the balls of your feet. And that amount of shock increases with speed unless you land on the balls of your feet, then there is no change. So when you land on the balls of your feet, how much lower is your tibial shock compared to landing on your heels? What units are the answer are we looking for? Uh, it's a percentage. Okay. This is the part where <laughs> Sam and I are like, we have no clue. Uh, yeah, that's a, this is really an excuse for me to tell you a fact and then to know who goes first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Give me a number uh, between one and a hundred. Twelve and a half. Twelve and a half. Ooh. I'm going to go 50. It is 19 point something. Ah. Oh. I was pretty dang close. Well done. Fitness buff Stefan Chin. You know all about tibial impact. And balls of your feet. <laughs> it is a thing that runners think about, like where you impact on your foot, because there's different amounts of stress on the body. Mm-hmm. So I had I feel like I had somewhere buried in the recesses of my mind some sense of the scale. I was like about one eighth, I bet. <laughs> uh, wow. So that's why I went with 12 and a half. Look at you. Well that's wild. Who do you who do you want to go first, Stefan? Well, I'll go first, I guess. Okay. So in the early 1900s, a man by the name of Dr. Jacob Lowe invented a machine that used the recently discovered x-rays to help him see through people's shoes and see all their foot bones inside. And this was intended- Why why didn't he just take their shoes off? I'm about to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So he was involved in some way with like soldiers coming from World War I. And so he- Invented this to help him process the soldiers faster without having to take off the boots. Oh, wow. Because it took too long. It's taking so um, long to get these guys' boots off. Yeah. So they had stinky feet, I bet, too. That's he didn't also want the true. Stink. He hated the yeah, stink. Foot. Yeah. That was the real reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then after the war, he's like, where else could we use these devices? Shoe oh. stores, eh? So there ended up being a few different companies that made these devices for shoe stores. And they had different names like Footoscope and Petoscope. <laughs> they were really common in the 1930s through the 1950s in a few different countries, including the U.S. Uh, and the idea was, and they were sort of marketed as like, get if you get your shoes scientifically fitted, yeah, then your feet will be like way better, your health will be way better, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so it's basically just a wooden cabinet with an X-ray tube inside. Uh, and a slot where you slide your feet in. And then there's like three different viewing ports on top so that uh, different people can be looking at it. Um, But then by like the late 1940s, they started to like have enough data around like x-rays and stuff to be like, maybe this should be banned. Maybe we shouldn't have these unshielded Mm -hmm. x-ray devices in shoe stores. Um, And so I think the FDA banned them. More and more states were banning them. Um, but in, and in the states that they didn't ban them, um, they were there were increasing restrictions. So like in some places you had to be you had to have a medical doctor operating them, which is kind of prohibitive for a shoe store, probably. <laughs> and so they ended up getting phased out over time. And I think the last ones stopped being used in the late 70s. 
uh, which they, it made it longer that than I was expecting. It's a but, long time yeah. to have a doctor on staff at your shoe store. <laughs> at that point, is it a shoe store or is it just a doctor's office? Maybe it was like a, a doctor who retired and was like, yeah, I'll sh- sell shoes on the weekend. Yeah, that makes sense. Could you bend over and see your own foot bones? Could yeah. you like really crouch? I mean, it, the machine was designed so one of the viewing ports was for the person whose feet were in the machine. Oh, great. So, yeah, they thought about everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if the doctor looks in there and is like, ah, look, I got your metacarpal. And then you're like, well, I guess I just got to trust you. And then, no, you look and you see it. And it's like, oh, I'm all messed up. And they're like, you're all messed up. Pay me lots of money. That's how you get them. Or you could be like, what's that in my foot? And then the doctor's like, that's literally how everyone else's bones look. (laughs) You just don't know. (laughs) There's actually a, a piece in the instruction manual, though, for these that says, it's like we recommend that you don't use these to like diagnose people's feet, that if people come in and try to ask you about their foot health, you should send them, you should refer them to a, a, a specialist for that or something. Uh, so mm-hmm. like the manufacturers were like, don't use these for medical use. This is for, <laughs> this is a sales gimmick, guys. <laughs> uh, so as the in, the uh, regulations and stuff were increasing, the shoe industry was like, Guys, the health risks of radiation is nothing compared to the health risks of having poorly fitted shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that was their like response to all Who of this. Who have you heard who's gotten foot cancer? That's not a thing. <laughs> Don't worry. Who has complained about their too tight boots? Everyone. Everyone. Your Everyone. dad, your neighbor. <laughs> you all your the child, time. Your dog. How does your foot feel? It hurts. <laughs> Owie. Mm-hmm. It turns out that it, the health effects weren't too bad overall because most people, you're just going in to buy shoes every once in a while, so you're not going to be exposed too much. But it was more a problem with the salespeople who are around this all the time. And then apparently, like, children, just like after school, they're like, ah, what do you want to do? And then they're like, let's my- go to the shoe store yeah. and take a look at our feet. Yeah, And so... Like there was a report of a girl who kept breaking her feet bones doing other things because they had become more brittle from doing this foot things so much. Um, and there was a, a shoe model who had to have a leg amputated because she got a severe radiation burn. And there was like another report of a, a salesperson that had like x-ray dermatitis, detached toenails and oh, ulcers no. under the nails. That's legit. I was I wasn't thinking the exposure would be that significant, but I guess it makes sense that it would be. Yeah, well, because you could turn them up to like to stay on for like forty five seconds, and mm. so I assume if you like these people were like, we're going all out, we're gonna look at this for as long as possible, max power, and then I don't yeah, know, it then, ended poorly. Yeah. So there were a few incidents, but overall, the health issues didn't seem to be too widespread, but. The other thing is they didn't really seem to help people get better fitting shoes either, which was the whole point of the device in the first place. Yeah. It turns out that like with the x-ray, you can see your bone, but there's a lot of flesh around the bone that needs to fit in the shoe also. Yes. And like the x-rays kind of don't show you that very well. So You know how you see that? Actually, a special scientific device called your fucking eyes. <laughs> <laughs> It's free 99. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. All right, Stefan, that was a great fact. I feel very good about it. Sari, what do you got for me? I I don't feel so confident. (gasps) Stefan is coming strong. Okay. 
In my opinion, one of the most annoyingly uncomfortable bodily sensations is wet socks. Mm. I hate them. Mm. Your feet feel damp and there's that weird squishy sound and sometimes they (laughs) chafe. Some water is fine and you just get pruney, but if you keep your skin too moist for too long, whether from water or sweat or anything, it starts turning kind of a translucent, kind of mushy color and texture, which is medically called skin maceration. Basically... Your skin cells are kind of liquefying, which no. can lead to more physical damage or infection from pathogens. Uh, and this was and is especially a problem for people who are stuck in wet socks for a long time, Ooh. such as military uh. folks standing in muddy, wet trenches. And in World War One, so same time, so many people suffered from macerated feet that then got infected that it got a horrible, gross name that matched the horrible, gross feeling. Trench foot. Mm. Uh, so people then and now because wet feet remain a problem in many situations have been trying to fight against trench foot a lot of the strategies are behavioral like trying to change into dry socks as often as possible or rubbing water repelling oils and fats onto your skin but another bucket of strategies are technology based basically making more waterproof socks and boots to protect against cold and damp but also making them breathable for sweat and whatnot in hot desert climates It's a really tricky challenge and is an ongoing discussion for textile scientists today. And here is where I want to add a caveat and where I think I'm going to lose to Stefan (laughs) because this is going to be the nugget of my fact. But after researching for literal hours across several days, I can't find if this is freaking true. Uh, And that's just how it is sometimes. And now I'm sharing the research process, so I'm not called a liar. But... According to a Time Magazine article from 2011 that everyone else in the world cites, but frustratingly doesn't include any sources, uh, a British inventor named Edgar Ellington was trying to create a waterproof sock using latex and cotton to help people protect their feet from trench foot. He saw a bunch of, like, thousands upon thousands of soldiers died from trench foot Mm -hmm. that were British. And he was like, gotta create a waterproof sock. And when he filled it with water to test it, so the story goes, it had a leak. So he got mad and threw it on the table and it exploded. And thus, the water balloon was invented. And Ellington's (laughs) water grenades were supposedly the first commercial version of these toys. And I wish I could say this is my fact because it's so freaking weird, but I haven't been able to find a patent, any sort of historical magazine or newspaper, any evidence that a British inventor that named Edgar Ellington even existed. He might be a ghost. Someone might have made him up, like Hank made up Joshua Everly Anthony Tripe. Uh, So I guess my fact is, let me know if you find anything about this freaking guy. (laughs) He used all his water balloon riches to erase himself from the world. Yes. He must have. He's a vampire and he erased himself. Once you invent something, this is a little known scientific fact. If you invent something as good as a water balloon, you live forever. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You just get the secret key to immortality. You live forever, but no one can remember you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So really what my fact is, is I know that trench foot exists. It's very bad. (laughs) It's up there on my worst nightmare list. Water balloons also exist. Uh And the funniest possible story for the invention of water balloons is that they were a failed sock. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not necessarily true but the funniest part I, I to me it sounds real it sounds real but it is frustrating that you can't even find the guy it seems like something you could find 
I looked at every possible freaking website, yeah. even all the ones that looked like garbage, like just reposting old articles from other places, plagiarizing, all yeah. that. Does anyone have even a single source? I looked in Google Books. I looked in Google Scholar. I looked like <laughs> everywhere. And there's really no documented history of latex balloons in general, which I uh -huh. thought was interesting. They huh. just like occurred. There's one mention of them in... 1825 uh, in wow. the Glasgow Mechanics Magazine and Annals of Philosophy, volume two of some guy named Mr. T. Hancock, who like glued two pieces of rubber together and then inflated it with air. <laughs> and that's like the earliest like latex balloon that I could find. But there has to be a person on Earth who's obsessed with the history of balloons. And there must be. Stuff. Or if not. It's a wide open field. Well, Siri, I'd like to reward you for your intellectual honesty and journalistic integrity. <laughs> but Stefan's fact was really good, and I really want to make a TikTok about it. <laughs> also, you were very close in the, the first game. So I think that Stefan is going to come out on top for the episode. This is why I had to leave the show, because I was too dominant. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. We were in a we were in a race to the top of season yeah. whatever two yeah. season two, mm -hmm. and you won. So we I kicked you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I could be I could show off my big old brain. <laughs> Speaking of, it's time to ask the science couch, where we ask listener questions to our virtual couch of finely honed scientific minds. This uh, is from Entu Osferatu on Discord who asks, how do we take care of our nails before tools? I feel like I got an answer. What? Yeah, go for it. It's, it's probably it's right. Gobby teeth, right? Yeah. And also like tools. Yeah. We've been using tools for an awful long time. Yeah, um, like a stick. Just doing doing things probably keeps them in check to some extent. Uh, we did a lot more um, working with our hands in dirt and stuff probably kept our nails a little bit more at bay. But also, as we have proven as modern humans, you can nibble those things if they get too long. <laughs> well, would you really want to nibble them back in the day? Look, compared to trench foot, it's no big deal. <laughs> I Googled trench foot and looked at pictures of it. I would eat a caveman's fingernail any day. Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, you did pretty good. I can just retire if you and Stefan take over. <laughs> Sam and I can go take a nap <laughs> and you two can just do the show. But yeah, I, I did look some stuff up. Uh, but, but that is the gist of what I found. Both biting or picking at it, like, like any, like humans still bite their nails mm -hmm. and then naturally wearing it down because of doing things with hands, uh, whether it's like fighting or climbing or I don't know, you break a nail doing things with your hands. But what is interesting about this is kind of the evolutionary transition between claws to nails. Mm. And I know this isn't the question, but <laughs> uh, I think it, it ties into nail care because we think of like dogs and cats of claws. They actively, um, like a, a cat and a scratching post, like actively pick at them and actively like rub them down on other surfaces to, to hone them down. But with primates like primates eventually evolved to have flat nails on fingers and toes rather than claws um and there's like a group of like lemurs and lorises and tarsiers uh i don't know how to say that one 
have nails on most digits and then grooming claws on mm. their second or third toes, which are like one leftover claw as opposed to all flat nails that they can use to like pick at themselves and whatnot. And that is probably happened multiple times mm. in the history of primates. But first, before we got to all flat nails, we had like a grooming claw, like a particular claw to do the purposes like picking at bugs or picking at burrs or other things. But as social grooming evolved, like helping each other out, you don't need a really long, gnarly claw mm-hmm. to reach around <laughs> your own back. Uh, you just ask someone else for help and then they can use their fingernails, which are good for like picking things, mm-hmm. um, picking up small things or uh, like prying things off and holding tightly onto things to help you groom yourself. Which I think is nice. There's things I like about having all flat nails and being like, look, I've I've evolved. They're all doing the same job. But now that I know that there was a time when we had like a, some nails and like one extra one that was different, did we miss out on the universe where we had like a Swiss army knife of hand? <laughs> <laughs> we had like a spoon and we had like a saw. <laughs> we had a knife. We had a regular nail. It'd be dangerous. This is I an agree, easy product. I guess I could strap them on now. Yeah, little fingertip prosthetics with like whatever you need on the end. Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that could be the future of nail care. So the past was we just kind of scraped them on things. Now we have nail trimmers or whatever. And then the future is you just put a cap over your natural nails and don't think about them. <laughs> yeah. You use your spoon finger <laughs> to do whatever you want. Spoon finger. If you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Or you can join the SciShow Tangents Patreon and ask us on Discord. Thank you to at Jarek Gora at 42 Clocks and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's easy to do that. You can sign up at patreon.com slash scishowtangents where you can be a patron, get access to all bunch of cool things. We got bonus episodes where we really sort of completely lose it. We've got a newsletter that Sari writes a weekly column for. We got our Cars 2 commentary and our Discord. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and helps other people find us. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. Next week, be ready for SciShow Tangents, the Buttstravaganza. Tell your friends. It's all been leading up to this moment. Just widespread. Be like, it's going to be a big butt episode. You cannot miss it. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stephen Chin. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these with Hiroka Matsushima. Our story editor is Alex Billow. Our social media organizer is Paula Garcia Prieto. Our editorial assistants are Deboki Chakravarti and Emma Dowster. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our executive producers are Caitlin Hoffmeister and me, Hank Green. And we couldn't make any of this, of course, without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. As you might know, everybody's a pooper. <laughs> and after you do the pooping, uh-huh. we have a few different options for dealing with the dirty butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's one t- 2018 study that had participants put gloves on and they wiped artificial diarrhea off of a fake butt <laughs> with four layers of toilet paper. 
to see how much of the poop bacteria was left on the gloves. Then they added a bidet into the mix so they could compare results. And they found that uh, on the bidet gloves, there was almost 64,000 times less bacteria. (laughs) So we here at SciShow Tangents cannot tell you what to do, but... (laughs) You know, a nice spray might be the way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, classic episode, everybody. (laughs) 